Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. One of the most interesting and short discussions Friedrich Nietzsche's Genealogy of Morals has to do with punishment, and in it he asks about the difference between the origin and the purpose of punishment. This is primarily in the second essay, the second part of the, uh, the work, and you find it mainly in chapter, well, it's concentrated in chapter 12 and chapter 13, but there's a lot of things going on in the earlier chapters that, that deal with this as well. So, first off, can we say that Nietzsche has a theory of punishment in the modern sense? There's a lot of people out there who have theories of punishment, and if you take a criminal justice class, or you take a philosophy of punishment class, or philosophy of crime, or, or anything like that, then you're invariably going to be introduced to things like a deterrence theory of punishment, an incapacitation theory of punishment, a retributive or retributionary theory of punishment. There's a lot of different things out there. And they're often presented as if, well, this is the main idea behind punishment. This is why we punish. And generally, along with that goes the, the assumption that unless you're punishing for that reason, you're not actually punishing rightly. So these are normative theories as well as just merely explanatory theories about punishment, about imposing force on somebody against their will for some sort of offense, whether it be an offense against oneself, an offense against the society, an offense against a set of mores or, or something like that. So does Nietzsche have a theory of punishment like that? Not exactly. As a matter of fact, Nietzsche is really presenting a challenge to any of these types of theories of punishment, in part because he's saying those would all be matters of purpose. Those would all be discussions in which you're really concerned with the point of punishing, why it is that we punish, and the reason generally you'd be doing that is so that you could justify punishment to somebody else, or to say we should restrict punishment in certain ways. You know, for instance, if you're a utilitarian, if you hold the view that any sort of punishment is essentially oriented towards the future, towards imposing certain restrictions on people, showing them certain things so that you'll, you'll cut down on the amount of, of crime and the amount of unhappiness in society thereby. You have a particular theory of punishment, and Nietzsche would say you're actually misunderstanding the purposes, the possible purposes of punishment, in part because there could be multifarious, almost you know infinite possibilities for why we, we should punish somebody. He's more interested in the origin of punishment and tracing things back to that. Before we actually get into that, though, let's look at a certain passage. This just gives you an idea of just how many possible purposes there could be to punishment. So he says, to give an idea of how uncertain, how supplemental, how accidental the meaning of punishment is, and how one and the same procedure can be employed, interpreted, adapted to ends that differ fundamentally. Ends are purposes. I set down here the pattern that has emerged from consideration of relatively few chance instances. So he's not saying these are all the reasons that people say they punish. These are just a few, if you sort of grab at random, a few purposes that people would adduce for why we might punish. Punishment is a means of rendering harmless, of preventing further harm. Punishment is recompense to the injured party for the harm done, rendered in any form. 
Punishment is the isolation of a disturbance of equilibrium, so as to guard against any further spread of the disturbance. Punishment is a means of inspiring fear of those who determine and execute the punishment. Punishment is a kind of repayment for the advantages that the criminal has enjoyed hitherto. Punishment is the expulsion of a degenerate element. Punishment is a festival, namely as the rape and mockery of a finally defeated enemy. Punishment is the making of a memory, whether for him who suffers the punishment, so-called improvement, or for those who witness its execution. Punishment is payment of a fee stipulated by the power that protects the wrongdoer from the excesses of revenge. You know, sometimes we punish people, according to this view, we punish people instead of allowing other things to be inflicted on them. Punishment is a compromise with revenge in its natural state when the latter is still maintained and claimed as a privilege by powerful clans. Punishment is a declaration of war and a war measure against an enemy of peace of the law of order of the authorities whom is a danger to the community as one who has broken the contract that defines the conditions under which it exists as a rebel, traitor, and breaker of the peace one opposes with the means of war. So you see about nine or ten different possible ends or reasons or purposes for punishment being given here. These are all reasons that have been historically provided by people trying to explain why they're punishing in this particular case or, or in general. So Nietzsche would say, you know, to the question, well, which one of these is the true purpose of punishment? Well, they all are. They can all be the purposes of punishment. Any one of them can work for that because we've misunderstood what it is for a thing to have a purpose in that sense, he would say. So if we go back and we think about the origin of punishment, then we get a better understanding of what's going on. So what is the origin of punishment? Nietzsche thinks, and here he's doing some sort of speculation about human prehistory, but, you know, he's pretty well equipped to do this since he was a, a philologist, a student of, of ancient languages, and that meant not just like learning the vocabulary, but actually reading all the literature and thinking about that literature as much as possible. So, the original relation he thinks involved in punishment is the relationship between creditor and debtor. And in ancient times, if you went into debt, you pledged things against your debt. And it wasn't like here today where you can go bankrupt. If you went bankrupt in ancient times, you became part of the debt. Your family became part of the debt. Not just your possessions, not just your money, not just your land, not just your house. You could be sold into slavery. People could do things to you as part of demanding repayment on the debt. So he talks about punishment itself is, in a sense, a way of paying something back, a way of establishing equivalences. You've done this sort of thing, you've taken this sort of thing from me, I get to take this from you, or I get to impose, in return, this thing upon you. There's an equivalence that's going on with that. Now, do you have to have this, like, enshrined in laws, courts, in a whole society? No, this can be between individuals, this can be within a, a, a clan, a tribe, something like that, not necessarily enshrined, worked out on the spot. The whole idea is that equivalences are being imposed or demanded. Now, like he says, and this is in chapter four of the second essay, the idea, now so obvious, apparently so natural, even unavoidable, that had to, to serve as the explanation of how the sense of justice ever appeared on earth. Justice is tied in with punishment. You know, are you punishing for the right reason? 
He says, that is in fact an extremely late and subtle form of human judgment and inference. Whoever transposes it to the beginning, whoever is saying that that's the origin of why people were punished, is guilty of a crude misunderstanding. He says, throughout the greater part of human history, punishment was not imposed because one held the wrongdoer responsible for the deed, in the modern sense. You don't actually see, if you look at ancient texts, ancient writings, ancient discussions of this sort of stuff, you don't actually see very often the sentiment that, well, that person could have done otherwise, and so that's why we're punishing them, because they could have gone this way, or they could have gone this way, and like a jerk, they chose to go this way. Instead, the person is being punished more like, well, things went this way, so now you're going to get what's coming to you over here. He says, not on the presupposition that only the guilty one should be punished. Rather, here we have affects involved, rather as parents still punish their children from anger at some harm or injury vented on the one who caused it. But this anger is held in check. This is what makes it punishment rather than just straight out, you know, rage or revenge. And modified by the idea that every injury has its equivalent and can actually be paid back, if only through suffering or pain of the culprit. So we have several different affects already in play here. We have anger involved. Anger takes place when somebody feels that they have been wrong. Something has been taken away from them. Something has been blocked. Something which they are owed hasn't been given back to them. Punishment allows the person who's been angered to inflict pain or suffering on the person who's being punished. But only so far, only to a certain extent. That's where this, this issue of credit or debtor or exchange or measure comes in. And so he says, this idea of equivalence between injury and pain, I've already divulged it in the contractual relation between creditor and debtor, which is old as the idea of legal subjects. And in turn points back to the fundamental forms of buying, selling, barter, trade, and traffic, these very, very primeval human activities. You might say, you know, human beings are not only the animals that reason, and that's part of how we are, are distinct from other animals. We are the animals that impose measure. We are the animals who swap things back and forth, who make deals. So punishment is, is tied in with that. Now, what is the compensation that's being given in that? I mean, it could be I damage a certain amount of your goods, I pay you back that amount, right? A monetary compensation. But Nietzsche is pointing out something very important here. Because when we contemplate these contractual relationships, one of the things that we noticed is that we see a lot of severity, cruelty, and pain. Why is that? Is it just because order, discipline had to be imposed on these subjects, these human beings would otherwise do whatever they wanted to, and so you had to make it as painful as possible to burn it into their memory? Not exactly. In Nietzsche's view, there's something else underlying this, and that has to do with these affects, these feelings, these, these desires. He says, let's be clear as to the logic of the form of compensation, the logic underlying why it is that the angered person, the wronged person, gets to impose pain or suffering on the other person. He says, an equivalence is provided by the creditors receiving in place of a literal compensation for an injury. So not in terms of money, land, possessions of any kind, a recompense in a form of something else. Now, what is that something else? He says, a recompense in form of enjoyment, of pleasure. What kind of pleasure? Pleasure in hurting another being. Pleasure in imposing conditions on another being. In taking something away from them, for example, their freedom. In making them do certain things. It's a kind of pleasure, a kind of enjoyment, a kind of desire that Nietzsche thinks is at the root of all 
living things, insofar as they're living, and in particular human beings. He calls this the will to power. And we'll talk about that in just a moment and how that fits in. So he says, what is this pleasure more specifically? The pleasure of being allowed to vent his power freely upon one who is powerless. So placing oneself above the other, forcing the other into a lower position. The voluptuous pleasure de faire le mal pour le plaisir de le faire. So that's a French expression that he's using there. And it means to do harm, to do wrong, to do evil to somebody. Le mal is, it can mean all those different things for the very enjoyment, the pleasure of doing it. This is what we would call, in some respects, sadism. The enjoyment of violation, the enjoyment of transgressing another another thing, transgressing boundaries, transgressing borders, transgressing relationships. He also notes another thing. This enjoyment will be the greater, the lower that the creditor stands in the social order. So if the creditor is a lower person in the social order, especially if they're able to punish somebody who's higher up, now they go all the way to the top and they're forcing that person down. So the, the amount of enjoyment comes out of one's social status to a certain extent. Why is that, he says, in punishing the debtor, the creditor participates in the right of the masters. So it's a way to have power over people. And, you know, if you think about this, you can see this at work in everyday things. Go to a restaurant and sit around and watch people interact with their servers. Some people are, are decent people and treat them well. Other people treat their servers as if they are servants and they treat them badly. And when the servers maybe screw up or don't, maybe they don't even screw up. Perhaps it's the cook or somebody like that. They take it out on them. And they're able to do that in part because they have a sense that they are owning the other person. They have a sense that they're making that person give them something. If the, the server won't fall in line, what do they do? They call the manager so that they can get the manager to help them inflict what it is that they want on that person. That's a sort of prosaic example, and you could multiply these by hundreds. So Nietzsche is saying all these different things are involved. So that's that the origin of, of punishment. What then does he mean by purposes of punishment? Well, we skip ahead to chapter 12. And he says, a word on the origin and purpose of punishment. Two problems that are separate, or ought to be separate, usually they're mixed up. Now, why is he concerned about them being mixed up? Well, a lot of people think that if they can figure out what the purpose of punishment was, or is, or ought to be, then they can read that back into history, and they can figure out why we started punishing in the first place. So the logic behind this is, well, we come up with some sort of reason, like we have to protect society. Okay, so now we read that back into the origin, and now we know why primitive peoples behaved the way that they did. Nietzsche says, eh, that doesn't really work. Our purposes may have changed radically over the time. And why would that be? Because they haven't remained constant in what they were supposed to attain because it's not the punishment itself, it's not the purpose itself that dictated it. It was a will to power in Nietzsche's ideas, that determined it. So he says, One imagined that punishment was devised for punishing, but purposes and utilities, usefulness, the, what you're getting out of it, are only signs that a will to power has become master of something less powerful and imposed upon it the character of a function. So if I am in charge and I am permitted to punish I may introduce new reasons into why we punish over time through history 
And those are legitimate purposes. Those are purposes, at least for me. I impose them. They may not have been at the origin of what was going on. I introduced something new to it. And I'm able to do that precisely because I force my will onto somebody else. The one who's being punished, perhaps also the society at large. So he says, The entire history of a thing, an organ, a custom can in this way become a continuous sign chain of ever new interpretations and adaptations whose causes don't have to be related to each other, but succeed and alternate with each other. So the evolution of a thing is not, Nietzsche thinks, a progress towards a goal, towards getting better and better and better. Uh, It's not even a logical progress where you're sort of working out a concept, figuring out, well, what does punishment really mean? Let's think about this. Well, what we want it to mean is this. If you do that, you're just imposing your will to power and then sort of pushing it backward onto all of history and saying all of them should fall into line with you. Probably not going to be very successful in doing that. And he says, to return to our subject, you have to distinguish two aspects. That in it which is relatively enduring, the act, the drama, the custom, or a certain strict sequence of procedures, that's not the origin itself. That's what the origin brings about. Punishing involves hurting somebody, imposing pain on somebody, taking something away from somebody, imposing conditions on them. Then there's something that's fluid, like he says, the purpose or the meaning, the expectation associated with the performance, what it is that it's supposed to do. And so the meaning of punishment is something that becomes entirely contestable. And I'm going to read you a passage. This is what we're going to end with here. He says, this fluid element, its meaning, is a very late condition of culture. So it has to do with the time that we're currently in, late modernity. And he says, the concept punishment possesses, in fact, not one meaning, but a whole synthesis of meanings. The previous history of punishment in general, the history of its employment for the most various purposes, finally crystallizes into a unity that is hard to disentangle, hard to analyze well, and as must be emphasized, especially totally indefinable. So what does that mean? That means that if your theory of punishment is really about what is punishment in its essence, what is the purpose of punishment, what is the norm or form to which all other punishments should conform, Nietzsche is saying that's a lost cause. So he's really doing something quite radical here in his his theory of punishment. His theory of punishment is a rejection of saying punishment is fundamentally about deterrence. Punishment is fundamentally about reconciling the offender. Punishment is fundamentally about this. He's saying punishment is not fundamentally about any of those things, except maybe at the start, and fundamentally it was about equivalences and making people pay you back in suffering that you would enjoy. So he's saying, all concepts in which an entire process is semiotically, that is through science, concentrated elude definition. Only that which has no history is definable. At an earlier stage, this synthesis of meanings can still be disentangled as well as changed. One can perceive how in each individual case the elements undergo a shift in value and rearrange them themselves accordingly. So that now this, now that element comes to the fore and dominates at the expense of others. And under certain circumstances, one element... For instance, he uses the example of deterrence, appears to overcome all the remaining elements. So what he's saying is, is you've got a choice if you, if you want to think about punishment. You can look towards its history, and then things are a little bit more clear. Or you can look at this myriad of possible purposes and realize that in no case are you ever necessarily 
talking about the single purpose. So any attempt to say, here's what punishment is really about, so therefore we have to have this policy, we have to stop doing this, we have to start doing this, is really just you using your will to power in a disguised form and pushing that on to other people. Maybe a dismal view in your perspective, but that is what Nietzsche's viewpoint actually happens to be on this. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.